Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 469 with Alexandra Levitt. I think you'll dig this chat with Alexandra because she is laying to rest, you know, what do we need to worry about versus not worry about with regard to robots and automation and the future of work in a sober, nuanced, measured way that is based on research and a lot of depth. So I really appreciated it. And I think it will help put you at ease and position you wisely for which skills you should be sharpening. So you'll learn one, the problem with how organizations automate. Two, honest predictions about the future of the human workforce. And three, the essential skills that make you future-proof. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find them over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F469, along with some other really cool stuff, such as the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course, which will show you how to slash over 80 minutes of waste out of your work week each week so you can get home earlier have a little bit more of life, or just do some more strategically fun, interesting work that our human brains are apt to do. Now, here's Alexandra's story. Alexandra Levitt has conducted proprietary research on the future of work, technology adoption, the millennial generation, gender differences and bias, and the skills gap. She's also served as a member of the Business Roundtable's Springboard Project, which advised the Obama administration, the U.S. Department of Labor, and the U.S. Department of Defense on current employment issues. Levitt also consults and writes on leadership development, human resources, technology adoption, entrepreneurship, innovation, career and workplace trends on behalf of Fortune 500 companies. She's a frequent national media spokesperson who's appeared at outlets including USA Today and a bunch of others. And Levitt was named an American Management Association top leader for two years in a row and has also been Money Magazine's online career expert of the year and author of one of Forbes' best websites for women. Big thanks to Alexandra for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Alexandra. Alexandra, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me, Pete. It is great to be here. Well, we usually start with a, a fun little warm-up question. So I'd love to hear from you. Are the robots going to kill and enslave us all? <laughs> Are the robots going to kill and enslave us? Um, the answer to that would be no, at least not in the foreseeable future. You know, there's something called the technological singularity, which refers to a point in time in which technology will become so advanced that we really don't know how it's going to transform our society. Our society will not look like it does today. So all bets are off when it comes to that point. But I think 
we can pretty safely say for the next 15 to 20 years that we can anticipate what robots are going to do. And really, they're going to be good partners. They aren't going to replace humans. They're not going to enslave humans. They are going to work alongside us and hopefully in most occupations allow us to do things that are more strategic and more meaningful and focus on the work that matters to us. Oh, well, you know, well, thank you. <laughs> I find that comforting. I mean, boy, way back when I was in college, you know, we were talking about this and there were a couple of my classmates who were totally convinced it was going to happen. And uh, he even used the evidence point. Have you seen the movie Terminator? I was <laughs> like, well, I have, but that's a movie and I don't think that's a good evidence point. <laughs> So 15 to 20 years, we're safe. That feels good. Yeah. I mean, Pete, I, I think your friends are not wrong to be concerned. And, and we can certainly talk about the reasons to be concerned and the reasons not to be concerned. But I think in the long run, it is something we're going to have to think about because these are very powerful machines. They're getting more powerful all the time. And so while the growth, I don't think is as exaggerated as some people might think in terms of machine learning and machines ability to really replicate and simulate human emotions and consciousness. It's not as fast as some people might think, but there's really no reason to think it wouldn't happen eventually. So I'm going to agree with your friends, but try to temper the hysteria a little bit. Well, I appreciate that. So, okay, well, with that established and a little bit of a breath of relief. <laughs> a little bit. Let's talk about what's up with automation these days. You know, there's a lot of buzz and I'd love it if you could just sort of set us straight on, okay, you know, what are some of the most striking data and stories that point to where automation is replacing workers and where it's really not? Well, this is a great question. And I think the primary message I want to get across when it comes to automation is that you can't just take huge swaths of your employee population and fire them so that you can automate everything. What I see organizations doing tends to be either too much or too little. So too little means they've buried their head in the sand and they really should be automating certain functions. And they're not doing that because they're behind the curve, which that's not an unfamiliar situation for organizations, particularly when it comes to technology. And other organizations aren't being strategic enough about it. They're just saying, well, just because I can automate something, well, that means that I should. And in fact, what we need to take is a far more measured approach. We need to look at specific tasks and what the objective is and then determine, okay, well, is this something where it's it's a routine task? It's something that needs to be replicated. It's something that doesn't require ethics or judgment. It it's something that we have machines that can perform for us, freeing up our human workers to do different types of tasks that do require a little bit more abstract thinking or creativity or ethical concerns or judgment, those types of things. And what we need to do is look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. And we, we've seen kind of what happens when organizations don't do that, when they just blindly automate things. And then there might be human workers there, but they're taught to just kind of stand blindly by while the machine tells them what to do. And the machine is is not considering the nuances. I mean, there, there have been several instances of this. Um, the most famous one actually happened here in Chicago, <laughs> where I know you and I both are. Um, it involved United Airlines a couple years ago, where algorithm told them, you know, we need to get these flight attendants from one place to another. 
that's the best scenario for business. That's where we'll make the greatest profit. And because the algorithm said so, and the system was automated, the human employees just kind of stood there and were like, oh, well, okay. And nobody really considered if we pull passengers off this plane in order to get these flight attendants on, what's going to be the impact on our brand? What's going to be the impact on our reputation, on our customer service? And the machine's not thinking about that because the machine is programmed that it only cares about profits. It doesn't care about all these nuances. And so we call the, the act of the human being watching over the machine, we call this the human in the loop. So whenever you automate something, you have to have a human being who's standing by saying, you know, I, I get that the data is saying this. I get that this is what, what we're automating, but we really need to take a step back and, and have some some difference of opinion here. And that is really, really important to consider when you are staffing projects or staffing departments. Yes, you might be able to, in fact, automate something and have an algorithm perform the task, but you still need the humans in the loop for oversight. It's very, very important. And so United is is a great example um, of that, that I think most people, at least in the U.S., are, are familiar with that, unfortunately, for United. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was very bad for them. And, and I think we're going to see, Pete, more of that kind of thing happening because automation is not being planned carefully enough. Mm-hmm. So that's intriguing in terms of, you know, some guidelines there. Hey, the more that things require ethics, creativity, and judgment, the more we need a human present and the more it's just sort of like rote routine, kind of repeat, 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 that sort of the less we do. Yep. So could you kind of orient us to, I guess there's a lot of buzz with regard to, you know, some saying that automation is going to replace all these things, you know, all these jobs are not going to exist. Like what's sort of the real fact base in terms of some of like the data and the stories pointing to, yes, right now we are seeing these specific jobs disappearing at quick rates and these ones are, might be next. Well, I'm glad you asked that because there really is an important reality check here. And there's been a lot of hand-wringing over the loss of jobs to machines. And when we look at it, it is something that we need to consider, but the, the numbers don't really support that it's happening in a, on absolutely crazy rates in all occupations. So for example, and a lot of consulting firms have done research on this, but I like uh, the McKinsey uh, research on it that says that about 60% of all occupations will be affected by automation in some shape or form. So that means chances are, if you, you're two out of three, you will have automation touch your job. But nevertheless, that's not 100%. That's still only 60%. And then the other part of that is, of those 60% of jobs that are impacted, only about 30% of the tasks in that job will be automated. So that means that even if you're within that 60%, you still have a whole bunch of things that you are going to be doing. So you might have one task or two tasks that can be automated, but everything else you're still going to be doing, and therefore your job isn't going to disappear. So I think that's a very, very important message that most jobs are not going to disappear entirely unless they are of the, the really rote, routine, um, factory-related jobs where you, you literally were, would stand there and put a widget on a conveyor belt. If you have that type of job, then you, you may have a problem. If you're in the tech sector and you only know one program, for example, and that's what you do, maybe you're a database builder or something, and that's all you do is build databases, and you don't evolve your skill set, then you might have a problem. So it's not just 
manufacturing and factory jobs. I mean, there are some knowledge-related jobs that could be impacted too. And that's why really I encourage people strongly to take responsibility for upskilling and reskilling. Look at where your industry and where your job function are going. See the writing on the wall. And if you see that the new software programs are starting to to pick up steam, that things are getting automated, then you're going to need to develop other skill sets. And in particular, tech people who have not had to develop soft skills like great communication and ethics and judgment, these soft skills that we've been talking about, now's the time because those, those jobs are going to be in jeopardy. The other thing though, Pete, is yes, there are going to be certain jobs that will go away. Um, as we've talked about, it's not as extreme as people say, but it will happen. But what is also really, really important to remember is that there are going to be just as many jobs, if not more, created by technology. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, whenever you have a machine inserted into a process, we, we talked about the human in the loop. Well, it's not just one human. It's somebody to design it, to build it, to figure out how to deploy it, to oversee it, to fix it when it's broken. And by the way, that last one, no one ever thinks about that. Oh, sure. You got it. Oh, reboot it. Oh, reboot it. Everything has to be rebooted. <laughs> I know. I mean, these things, the more we rely on technology, the more things are going to break and people are going to oh. have to be able to fix it. So these things are really, a ton of jobs are going to be created. The other thing that's really critical is that there are job categories that do not currently exist that will be created by technology. Um, and as an example, I always used to say when I graduated from college, social media manager wasn't a thing because social media wasn't a thing. And now every department has its own social media person. Some entire firms are based on social media. So that's a good example that everyone is aware of. And then also something that, that the importance cannot be overstated somebody needs to explain what technology is doing <laughs> to the rest of the human world, especially decision makers and leaders. So those explainers, you need someone behind the technology who can actually, forgive me for using the word again, but to explain in very plain English what the technology is doing, how it came about the decision that it suggested, how did it work, kind of peering into the black box, if you will. So these are these are the types of jobs that, that will be created as a result of technology. And I think at the end of the day, we're going to see really no net loss in human jobs. And we had the same concerns when the Industrial Revolution happened and when cars got on the road. Every time society changes, we worry about this and it doesn't happen because new jobs are created. So overall, I think it's a wonderful time for human employment. It's probably the best time ever because we can really use our brains and, and do what we're good at instead of doing things that are so boring and <laughs> easy to repeatable. Oh, yeah. Boy, I like so much of what you said there, not just because it's happy news, but just because it's a kind of inspiring in the sense of, okay, there's not much to fear with regard to those tasks being automated. I think a whole other category of stuff is just that I think just about every human has a to-do list that's longer than what they can do. And I'm seeing this now. So we've got sort of more staff now on this podcast. We got about three and a half people, which is amazing. Awesome. Thanks, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, Good for you. And then plus me. And then plus contractors on top of that. So it's growing. And lo and behold... At first, I was kind of worried. It's like, oh, man, is that too many people? There's some exceptional talent. I didn't want to like be let go and sort of not snap up. But do we have enough work? It's like, oh, sure. There's just all the stuff we haven't been doing. Now we're, we're going to do like, let's fix all of these things. 
that are suboptimal. Let's go, you know, chase after these opportunities we haven't chased after. So I think that's huge in and of itself in that the stuff that's not getting done that we, oh, we'd kind of like to, if we could get to it, you know, now we can get to it as well, as opposed to a zero sum game. Is it, there's a job to be done. If the machine is doing it, the human's not doing it. And the human's out of work is like, well, no, there are more jobs to be done than there are humans to do them. So we got that going for us too. I think you're right. And maybe if that was the case, maybe companies would be more strategic. Because I have to tell you, when I mean, when I go in, I'm a futurist. So I talk about the future of work and what organizations need to do to prepare. And when I go in, sometimes it's so funny. People are like, well, you're going to talk about flex work. Flex work isn't futuristic. It's like, yeah, but are you doing it? And are you doing it well? I mean, I, I get that it doesn't sound futuristic, but I mean, th- this is where organizations actually are and that's that they're behind. And so my hope with what you're saying is that maybe we won't be so behind if we don't have so much administrative work to do. Oh, totally. It's like, hey, go figure out the flex work thing. <laughs> we got a few <laughs> hours free this week. When does that happen? Yeah. <laughs> go figure this thing out. Do that and then do these other things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's good. Well, and I don't know if this is neither here nor there, but I've been surprised when I really try to rock automation, sometimes I'm sort of disappointed by the results in terms of, okay, there's all these, for instance, you know, platforms and AI, whether it's IBM or Google or others kind of doing their darndest to transcribe a human speech to text. And, you know, maybe your accuracy is not bad, 98% or something, but that still means that in one minute of speaking, you know, we're going to have to correct three plus errors. And often I find it's way more than that. It's maybe five to 10 times that. Yeah. And then in practice, when I sort of tried a hybrid approach, it's sort of like, my human transcribers who are aided by technology say, yeah, it's a little bit faster, but I'm kind of making a lot of concessions in terms of I wouldn't type it that way. And I, but I guess it's fine with regard to capitals or mm-hmm. commas or whatever. And it's a whole lot less fun and rewarding <laughs> to correct a bunch of things a machine did than to do it myself. And so I don't know. I guess I am. And not as bullish in terms of automation is going to replace everything is it's like, well, they can't even get the transcript right right now. And maybe they'll be better in five years. But I don't know. That's me just complaining. <laughs> well, I know, Pete, I think that's a great example of what we were talking about earlier. And that's that this isn't going to happen as fast as people think. If we're still dealing with transcription, I mean, that's kind of and especially transcription has been around for 25 years, you know, automated transcription. I mean, I remember when I first came out of college using a a tool for that. So it's just not going to happen as fast and things are not going to be as smooth. So just like you're experiencing, but, but on a wider scale. And again, as we rely more and more on technology for our everyday life and we don't know how to do things without technology, I think we're, we're going to be pretty hard up because then we're helpless. And and that is something that I actually get concerned about. There's a couple of things that keep me up at night, and that's one of them, that all of a sudden we're just not going to know how to do anything because we're reliant on technology for everything. So I hope that doesn't happen, but I am concerned mm. for sure. Yeah. Well, then let's talk then about the things that humans do well. You've highlighted six in particular, uniquely human skills. And just thinking about it from the perspective of you know, the listener, if we're uh, professionals and we want to make sure that our knowledge working careers are long and rewarding and fruitful and growing, and we note that technology evolution is sure a real thing that's happening, 
What are the skills we can nail to just be kind of bulletproof with regard to all this? Well, there are a few. And of course, I talk about some of the softer ones, like having judgment, having intuition, having interpersonal sensitivity and problem solving, having empathy. I talk about those in Humanity Works. But I'd like to highlight one in particular here because I think it it relates to a lot of what we've been talking about. And that's applied technology skills. So what that means is I'm, I'm a part of a nonprofit organization called the Career Advisory Board. It was established by DeVry um, way back in 2010. And what we've been looking at is what, where are there really the biggest skills gaps between what hiring managers are looking for and what people are bringing to the table. And not surprisingly, we identified this category of applied technology skills, which are skills that help you use people, processes, data, and devices to make better business calls, better decisions. And it means that not necessarily do you need to know how to program yourself, for example, but you need to know that software is out there and available to help you do your job better. So you need to know what technology is feasible and you need to know how to employ that technology and how to make sure that it's managed seamlessly and how to do change management in your organization when you're trying to roll out a new technology. So these are applied technology skills and every single person who works in the business world for the foreseeable future needs to have these. And why this is so important is traditionally, the people who focused on technology were in the IT group. Nobody else had to worry about it. And that is changing rapidly. Now we have line of business managers and and all kinds of people involved in what technology should be rolled out, what applications should be developed, what software should be deployed. And that is really an area where I think most people are going to be caught completely off guard that they are not marketable unless they have a really good handle on the technology that's being used in their function, in their industry, and what's really cutting edge. What are the top organizations doing? And no one has has really thought about this if you're not in IT. And that is, I think, going to be a steep learning curve. Unfortunately for organizations, applied tech absolutely can be taught, but it needs to be retaught over and over again. Because if you think about it, Pete, it's going to change the technology over like one or two years. It really has. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's not an easy thing to do, but it has to be done internally and people have to take responsibility for doing it on their own as well. Well, you know, I think that I've just really come to terms with that notion right there in terms of, I think, you know, even just with this podcast about uh, a little over three years old now, it's sort of like the stuff that was available when I started is completely different than what is available now. Right, exactly. And then even like application by application, it's sort of like, oh, I heard that wasn't any good. And then, you know, their teams are iterating away on the thing. And then a year later, it's like, no, actually that tool is perfectly usable now. So you should totally check it out again. It's a different landscape Yes. every year or two. And so what are some of your pro tips in terms of, okay, the professional who wants to be ahead of the curve and be sharp with that, I mean, how does one acquire that knowledge in terms of just kind of regular daily, weekly practices to stay on top of stuff? Well, I think reading is, you know, a kind of an unsexy but smart thing to do. Read not just um, 
IT publications, you might think that that's, that's the place to go. But actually just reading like a fast company is really cool because they talk about technology a lot and they talk about different functions that are adopting different types of AI and different types of technology. I think taking a crash course in data analytics can't hurt anyone. I did this myself. I was talking so much about data analytics, which is one of the applied technology skills that we found that organizations are, are really clamoring for. And I, I realized I didn't really know what I was talking about. So I went and I took a free course from IBM on what is data analytics? What are some of the top software programs you use to do it? What does it tell you, et cetera, et cetera. And I um, now know a little bit more, but I could get more in deep in it and may still, if it's going to be relevant um, to what I continue to talk about and do. But I, I think that the advantage today is that there's really no excuse for not acquiring a skill because there's so many options. You don't have to wait for your company to teach you. Uh, organizations are kind of getting with the program and that they're collating a bunch of online resources for their people. They're partnering with websites like degree.com to give their people certifications for different skill areas. I, I mean, I see this movement is definitely happening here, but you don't have to rely on your company being smart with this. You can be listening to this podcast today and say, oh, actually, I don't know. I don't even know what data analytics even is. What a bu- It's a buzzword. That's all I know. And you could go and find the IBM course yourself. And it took, I think it was like an hour. And I've got, a, I've got all the background that I need for now and just being able to talk intelligently with your team about how that might be employed or if it's already being employed, how's the data being collected? You know, is it integrated properly? Is, is it valid? <laughs> and these are all the important things. What programs are you using to look at it? I and mean, these are, and what decisions can you make as a result of, of looking at it? So I, I think it's, it's easy to do, or at least easier than it ever was before. Mm-hmm. Okay. So applied technology skills, data analytics is one. And what are the other big ones? Well, I think being able to program applications, application development. And the good news there is that, again, you used to have to program apps. You would have to know a lot of code and you would have to be trained in that. And now there are, just like you used to have to know HTML in order to build a website and now you don't, you also can get a a software program that can help you build apps. And what we see happening now in a lot of organizations is they realize that an app will help their customers, it'll help their workers. And so they'll just, you'll have one function working with IT to build that app out and it will come from the line of business as opposed to coming from IT. And that is a huge change. So app dev, you know, data analytics, um, an understanding of, of infrastructure, digital infrastructure, digital transformation. So what it means to move everything from one you know, from ma- from a manual process to a digital process, like what's involved in that. Um, change management, I mentioned this briefly earlier, is not an applied technology skill, but it's it's what I call an adjacent skill area, where if you've got applied technology skills and you're working with technology, you're going to need to do change management effectively because research from everywhere essentially has shown that between 60 and 90% of change initiatives involving technology fail because users don't want to adopt it, it's too difficult, it doesn't integrate, it breaks, et cetera. So you you really have to be strategic about it. You can't just roll it out and expect that everyone is going to say, yay, it's new technology. So that's an adjacent skill area that that if you have applied tech, you're going to need to develop as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a nice lineup. Well, quick follow-up there. So where do I go if I want to develop applications without knowing any code? That sounds appealing. Oh, <laughs> well, I can say it because I don't work with this organization anymore, but I learned so much about app dev when I was working with QuickBase. 
as a spokesperson for them. And that's an example of a software program that allows you to build apps without knowing code. Okay, nifty. And so I guess that there's things like, well, hey, one of our sponsors, iDashboards, is handy with regard to looking at all of the stuff without having to know code to make it all display beautifully yeah. for you there. And to prop them up even more, I mean, dashboards are critical for getting all of your data in one place and being able to analyze the whole of it instead of looking at it in silos. So having a dashboard for whatever function you are running it from, I tend to focus mainly on HR systems, um, but having that view of everything and having it be easy to read. And again, you can translate it for other decision makers and, and produce reports and statistics. Very, very powerful. So if you don't have one of those tools, and Pete didn't pay me to say this, but seriously, as a futurist, like you need to have that view of your technology and, and your, your data in one place. Cool. All right. So there's a bundle of applied technology skills that are, are great to know to be sort of bulletproof in, with the future of stuff. And now let's talk about some of those uniquely human skills. You got leadership, teaming, creativity, innovation, judgment, intuition. I think that in a way, it's almost easy to brush these aside. Yeah, like, yes, of course, you know, these are important and we all need to have them, you know, but what have you found are some of the sort of best practices for a professional to adopt to keep one or more of these skills sharper and sharper week after week? This is a great question. And it's something everybody needs to be focusing on. And I would have said 25 years ago that you need to be focusing on these things. And I think the most successful people in business have always focused on these skills. The difference is, is now it's essential because you can't skate by on being able to do a task anymore. You have to have those unique human elements that will set you apart from a machine. And my favorite example, I actually talk about it in Humanity Works. This is absolutely my favorite example was what happened in Japan when they tried to roboticize their nursing. And they did exactly what you're talking about, Pete. They said, what do we really need human nurses for? Like, this is what our nurses need to do. Oh, dear. This is seriously what happened. Oh. Japan had an, a labor shortage in, in nursing. Oh. They didn't know how to get more humans. So they're like, we'll build a robot. It'll be cool. <laughs> so they built a robot. They called it Robear. It was six feet tall. And essentially what Robear ended up being able to do was serve food, move people in and out of bed, and do some of these rote physical tasks that nurses do. But Japan had to learn the hard way, oh my God, like our human nurses do things like they come into a room and they look into a patient's eyes and within a second or two, they're able to ascertain the level of pain that they're in. They can walk into a difficult uh, clinical situation and be able to, in their mind, assemble a group of experts from the hospital that they need to come in and solve the problem. They can sit down with a patient relative who just got a difficult diagnosis and sit with them and care for them and show empathy toward them. And these are all things that were kind of, as you're saying, overlooked and became critical when all of a sudden they had this robot that couldn't do any of that. So most jobs, and this is what I said, this is not just a nursing thing. Most jobs have these components. There are very few jobs where you don't need to have any interpersonal skills. And in fact, some jobs are gaining the need for certain interpersonal skills. Um, my favorite example that I came across recently is in the supply chain, where in the supply chain, it used to be a lot more, I don't know, it was it was global in nature. It was less um, 
it was less personal the way that it was rolled out in many organizations. And now what we're seeing in the supply chain is it's actually becoming more local and more regional and more relationship-based. So you might have been a logistics coordinator in the past and not really had to interact with other people too much. Now you do. And so that's an example of of an occupation where if you don't have those interpersonal skills now, maybe you didn't need them in the past, but you're going to need them as we move forward. The, The world in a way is going to become smaller, not larger, as people crave that human touch. And every time I've seen technology rolled out, it's always got this high tech, high touch component. Everyone talks about that. It's like, it's gotta be high tech, but we've also got to have high touch because our employees, for example, don't just want to go through onboarding where they're in a portal, they take courses, their little avatar tells them where they need to be and who they need to meet. Like They want their manager to show them care and concern also. They want their peers to come by and say, let's go to lunch. This is never going to go away. And so you have to include that stuff whenever you are implementing a new technology. Those, And so therefore, the people who are in jobs are going to need to have those skills. Mm-hmm. So we got to have them uh, no matter what. Yeah. I'm with you there. And so how do we keep them sharp? Yes. Yeah, so how we keep them sharp. My favorite course in the entire world, I took it way back in 2000, but I still recommend it highly, is the Dale Carnegie course. I learned so much about how to be an effective human. It was unbelievable. I learned how to be diplomatic, how to compromise, how to get people who you have no authority over to collaborate with you, uh, how to change somebody's attitude, how to combat anger and frustration in people, how to manage my own attitude. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And if your organization has a, a program like Dale Carnegie or has Dale Carnegie, please take advantage of it. I mean, I got to take that course for free and I, I can say that it shaped my entire career after that. It probably is the single most important thing I ever did for my own development. And those kind of courses are, are everywhere. Um, if, if you want some additional suggestions, I can either, you know, people can email me. Oh, let's do them, yeah. You can even just do a web search for, you know, interpersonal <laughs> skills. All of the massive open online course providers like Coursera and edX and Udemy, they have courses on, on interpersonal skills that you can take and empathy. And uh, again, like all the other skills we're talking about, these are relatively easy to get your hands on for either low or no cost. So the first thing I recommend to people is see what your company offers because you might as well get it paid for. And if it doesn't offer something, then create your own curriculum. So what I tell people about all skills that they need to develop. It's like figure out what's going to keep you marketable and then make a plan to get those skills. Absolutely. And well, and I think it's kind of fun. You know, I sort of enjoy the charting your own course and choosing your own adventure in terms of, okay, Amazon, let's see, what do you got in mm-hmm. terms of books on this subject? And then often you see there's a couple standouts like, holy smokes, uh, this one has 2000 reviews and is apparently the book <laughs> about the subject. I guess I'll read that one, you know, as well as, oh, and this one just looks like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I can listen to this one by using yep. auto. And so that's right. I think it's just kind of fun to, as you said, it's kind of fun to think about as creating or designing your own curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where I read this, but I think it's true. It's like if you read like the top five books in a field, then you will like know more about that field than like 90 plus percent of the people working in that field and just look like a genius. And I've had, someone was on the show, they mentioned 
boy, you know, whenever I had to pick up a new challenge, that's what I did. And people were like, wow, this guy knows so much about this area. It's like, no, I'm new. I just read the books before I started. That doesn't surprise me at all, Pete. <laughs> it really doesn't. And if they say it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert about something. I, I don't know about that. And maybe to become like a world class, like the top person. Right. Like a violinist. I think you're right. I think that, and, and I've done that too. I mean, I didn't, start off being an expert in all the things I talk about either. And with my first book, They Don't Teach Corporate in College, literally all I did was research a book about good traits to develop to become an effective professional. And I used Dale Carnegie and some of the other things. And the second I published that book in 2004, there was no other book like it at the time. All of a sudden, I was considered an expert. And I'm like, you know, I'm really not an expert. I'm just a 27-year-old kid who had a hard time and did some research and put together a book. But it's amazing. Like when you when you have a book or you read a book, it's uh, it really is going to, to give you a surprising platform to talk about. And uh, and, and I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And there, the good news is there's a lot of great stuff out there. I mean, I still like the classics, um, Dale Carnegie, and of course, Stephen Covey, who I had the fortune to be mentored by um, a few years ago before his death. But no kidding. You had one-on-one time with Stephen Covey. I did. I did. It was so awesome. He's so great. Um, And he really gave me a lot of um, great advice and great exposure, et cetera. But his seven habits of highly effective people, and that was written decades and decades ago, and it still applies. And that's the thing about these human skills, right? they are the human skills that don't change and the things that we struggle with don't change either. So we have to be mindful of both. Well, that's so powerful because, you know, I think of Stephen Covey, one of the words that leaps to mind is timeless. And um, Mm -hmm. we've interviewed a few Franklin Covey executives on the program and they're all great. (laughs) So it it lives on. So I'm getting a kind of a chuckle out of, we're talking about sort of the future and technology and automation. And what's the answer? Read some books. (laughs) And, um, so that's good. But maybe you could zoom into, is there any kind of key memory moment sentence that Stephen Covey shared with you that really left an imprint in particular? Um, he talked to me about, and I know this is in the book too, he, he talked to me about time management. And at the time I was, when I met him, I was struggling a lot with I basically had three things I wanted to do in my life. I was working as a VP in PR. I wanted to get my business off the ground and I wanted to have a baby. And I didn't know how to do all of those things. And so we talked about how I could prioritize the things that were the most important. And so thanks to his leadership and mentorship, I I was able to decide I'm going to let the PR job go even though this was kind of risky because that was my primary source of income, I knew I had enough income from the business and I knew I wanted to stay home with my son a little bit to see how I liked being a mom. And I knew I wouldn't be able to do everything. And so he really solidified in me this sense of balance and this sense of you've got to prioritize the things that are important to you and you have to do it young. I'm so glad that I met him when I did. And I'm so glad that when I was 27, 28, I was putting the pieces in place to make a life possible where to this day, my kids are eight and a half and 11 and a half. I, I still have a lot of time with them and a lot of flexibility to do what I, I need to get done because of the way that I've structured my career. And so I, I really have Stephen to thank for that in large part. That's awesome. Well, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I don't think so. All right, then let's go. How about a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? 
Uh, Henry David Thoreau, for sure. You know, march confidently in the direction of your dreams and you will meet with unexpected success. Just always go after what it is you want, especially in this world of where the opportunities are there now. We aren't stuck in certain occupations. There's more movement even within an organization than there ever used to be. So if there's a skill you want to develop, if there's something you want to learn, if there's a type of work you want to do, go figure out a way to do it, even if you don't get paid for it. And our lives are going to be about the pursuit of meaning. And so that's why I like that quote from Mr. Thoreau. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Well, I like psychological experiments. I was a psych major in, in college. And so I like some of those famous experiments where they've shown you know, the bystander effect. I find fascinating where if there's an emergency, if you don't put somebody in charge of solving the problem, everyone will just kind of stand there. And I see that happening in corporations every day uh, as we speak. So that was, an, that was an interesting one from social psychology. Um, we're talking about human skills. I like uh, the study with the rhesus monkeys where a rhesus monkey was given um, a cloth mother to love. And th- that monkey did better than a monkey that didn't have any love at all. And or So even having a fake monkey <laughs> to love was something. So because all beings need love and affection. And I think we can't automate everything because then we won't have that. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite book? My favorite book right now is actually Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. <laughs> And I know that that's politically charged. So maybe I don't want to say too much about it, but it's about the pursuit of individualism. And I just find it fascinating. And one thing that I've been trying to do lately, especially in the last three years since the election, is understand the other side and understand where people are coming from and what values and what ideals are at work to lead people to think a certain way. And so I do feel that that book, um, it is one that I read recently, and I'm glad that I did. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite tool? Favorite tool, QuickBooks. And for accounting, it has been a godsend, a lifesaver. And unlike some of the technology that you and I talked about, Pete, for a small business, it's so easy to use. It makes it so I don't have to spend tens of thousands of dollars on my accounting every year. And taxes, it's just, and it's so easy. It's great. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite habit? My favorite habit lately is meditation. I meditate every night before bed for 30 minutes. I find that it it really helps me sleep much better. It helps me be clear-headed in the morning. And overall, I think it's a nice thing to do. It kind of stops the the situation where your mind is racing, you're trying to sleep and you can't calm down. And it's been great. And I hope I keep it forever. Mm -hmm. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? You hear them quote it back to you often? The biggest um, nugget that I've been sharing for 15 years, so they don't teach corporate in college is the book that was published 15 years ago. It was my first book and it's the book that is going to be republished in fourth edition um, in September. And the thing that people always talk about is that it doesn't matter what you do. It's who knows what you do and do they value it? And this perception is reality thing is, is something that really hit me hard when I was a young professional because I thought just churning out work like there was no tomorrow would be enough. I didn't really care about what people thought about me. I just wanted to do good, a good job. But part of doing a good job is caring what people think about you and making sure that they have the right impression of you. And that is something that people come back over and over and over again. It is the, so gratifying when people who are like, 
40 come to me and say, I read your book when I was 25 and it changed the course of my career. And usually they'll mention something related to what I call the professional persona um, or the mature, competent um, face that you project to the work world and the impression you try to give people of you. So that's probably the most common. Well, I think we have to have a couple sentences on the professional persona. (laughs) This is so valuable. What's the story there? The professional persona is the mature, competent, um, and together face that you present to the work world. And there's a lot of talk recently, Pete, about bringing yourself to work and being your whole self. And I think that you can be the best version of yourself at work. And it's not necessarily the version that you would share when you're out for drinks with your friends on Friday night or when you're goofing off with your family around the around the Thanksgiving table. It's a it's the more professional version of yourself. And I think you always have to be buttoned up a little bit concerned about what comes out of your mouth and what you're displaying online that shows who you are. And you you just want your organization to be proud to have you as an employee and not have anything detract from that impression. Mm -hmm. And this is a light bulb for people in terms of like, tell me about that. I think, yes, especially for young people who have... They've been brought up to believe that they are unique and special and that they should, their perspective should be valued and that they should be able to be themselves at work. And again, I think to some degree that's true, but the reality is that business operates in a certain way. It still does. And you have to be mindful of the culture of your organization and the people don't think about that. It doesn't even occur to them. They just, they go in, they, they, (laughs) they're themselves. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And for me, it didn't, which is how I learned about all this. Mm -hmm. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs. People should be awesome at their jobs by looking ahead to future work trends. What is going to be necessary in your field, in your industry, and how are you going to get the skills so that you are gainfully employed in the next three years, six years, nine years, even the next two decades? How can you plan ahead? What kind of life do you want and how can you get there? And you're going to put yourself in a position to be the most effective person in a certain job. So even if some of the jobs disappear, you're still going to be be at the top because you've got the best skill set. Mm-hmm. Alexandra, this has been a lots of fun. I wish you with the book, Humanity Works, tons of luck and keep up the good work. Thank you so much. It was great to be here, Pete, and I'll see you next time. I think the piece that stuck with me the most here is this story about the robot nurses and how even before she started that story, I thought that is a ridiculously terrible idea. <laughs> and then it proved to not work out so well. And then that just gets me thinking on, you know, how often are we like a robot nurse, if you will, in terms of what I mean is we reduce our jobs purely to the output activity functions of I complete this and this and this and this. And that is what I do. That is my job. And in so doing, really do ourselves a disservice. And to note that just as silly as it would be to have a robot be a nurse, so too is it silly for us to only engage in the level of content, work, task, activity, execution, and not all the human stuff. So just check yourself a little bit and think, am I behaving a bit like a nurse robot or on the continuum of solely executing function, activity, task versus engaging human to human, what's going on, thinking about their needs and being creative and 
proactively contextualizing and anticipating and adding extra stuff that isn't in the algorithm, if you will. That is what makes you a joy and a thrill and a pleasure to work with beyond a piece of software that is annoying and frustrating and not quite doing what you need to do or, or doing only the very narrowest of things. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to as we've referenced, you can find them if you expand inside the app, your episode notes or description or on that awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep469. If you haven't already, hope you push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Craig Dowden. He's got an approach to make performance reviews truly helpful, meaningful, and enjoyable. So if you're not experiencing that, he may well have the solution for you. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.